Good morning. We are thrilled that you have decided to join us as we again delve in Scripture and we talk about this wonderful book with a really long and complex name called Deuteronomy. Now today we're going to find the covenant and the gospel in the book of Deuteronomy. But before we do that, and before we chat with my colleague and co-host Pastor Joey, we're going to invite you to join us in a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for allowing us to open Scripture. And we ask, Lord, that you inspire us, uh, that you fill us with curiosity, with a little bit of hope, with compassion, and with courage, and with care. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, my personality type is defined by this penchant to feel inadequate. And so I wrestle with inadequacies all the time, whether it be what I should wear or what I should say, my scores on a particular test or how well I interact with our church members here, how much I put into friendships and how well I do in the few sports that I continue to practice. Inadequacies lurk at every corner. But in the past few months, I have rarely felt more inadequate than Thursday evening every week. You see, Thursdays is my day with almost sole care of our oldest boy, a fifth grader that is precocious, loquacious, and every bit as verbose as his father. The problem is that my son has started pre-algebra in the fifth grade, and as they struggle with unknown variables and fractions and haves and have-nots, I've realized that math, yes, math, that constant that ought never to change, that thing that was supposed to be like the law of the Medes and the Persians, is actually different now. Now, this is not me griping. It's not me beginning another long diatribe on how Pluto ought still to be a planet because that's how we learned about it all these years ago. No, this is really something that is making me feel inadequate. Math has changed. And because math has changed and we're now doing something that my fellow teachers and friends here in our community call Common Core Math, I feel inadequate. And so I've found ways in order to placate my inadequacy by going everywhere I can and subscribing to a long litany of websites that allow me to learn Common Core Math so that then I can help my son with his homework. Now, just last week, Micah reminded me, Dad, I don't know why we spend so much time for you to learn the lesson when it would be shorter for me to just do the math on my own. And I said, son, math cannot change. I know these concepts from long before, and this used to be my favorite subject. And so he now has to just agonize and be patient with me as I learn. But as we think about things that we believe have changed, even though the concepts ought to remain the same, my mind immediately goes 
Well, it goes to Scripture. Among all of the passages that form the corpus of Israel's faith tradition, none speaks to my heart so deeply as that famous passage found in the book of Micah, the sixth chapter. And you know this well, the one that starts, you have been told by Yahweh, O mortal, what is right. And at the heart of this invitation for Israel to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly is this concept, this concept that they already know what justice looks like, that they have understood from long ago what mercy feels like and what humility is practice and how it ought to be practiced in the realm of human relationships. It's not like Micah is giving them some new insight into what God demands from us mortals. It's that it's always been there. And as my mind goes to these concepts of justice, I wonder where, I wonder where Israel's idea of justice came from. And I realize that the notion of justice is linked almost inescapably to the idea of covenant. Now, you and I think about justice as punitive in nature, and we've talked about this before. When we talk about justice, we often talk about this idea of reparations, of actually allowing for punishment to once again balance the scales. We do so because we come from a Greco-Roman understanding of jurisprudence. But as the great sociologist of religion, Karen Labox reminds us, the Jews understand justice in a different way. For the Jews, the concept of justice is based in this idea of restoration. And if you and I as Christians believe that the gospel is all about the promise of restoration, both in our personal lives and our relationships, then the gospel, well, the gospel is the dictum by which justice is meted out. Again, this isn't anything new. Jesus quoted a long list of Old Testament passages that relate deeply to this idea of justice. And as we begin to talk about the covenant, particularly the covenant in the book of Deuteronomy, the concept of justice springs forward. Now, I want to study with you today this idea of the covenant and of the gospel in Deuteronomy as it is prescribed to us in the second list of the Ten Commandments. Now, typically, we think about these commandments as God's divine decrees, these laws that are to serve as guardrails for our life. But I would like to posit the premise this morning to you that the Ten Commandments really are about justice. Now, the first reason why I believe that this hypothesis holds some weight is that the Ten Commandments are preceded by a rather detailed introduction. So I want to invite you to, before we delve into Scripture, to consider the words that the author of Deuteronomy writes in chapter 4, verses 44 and on. It says, 
This is the law Moses set before the Israelites. These are the stipulations, decrees, and laws that Moses gave them when they came out of Egypt and were in the valley near, near Beth Peor, east of Jordan, in the land of Shihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon and was defeated by Moses and the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. They took possession of this land of the, and of the land of Og, king of Bashan, the two Amorite kings east of Jordan. This land extended from Erawer on the rim of the Ornon Gorge to Mount Sinai and included all of the Arabah east of Jordan as far as the Dead Sea below the slopes of Pisgah. So, in essence, right before God gives the second iteration of the Ten Commandments, God says, you are getting ready to finally enter the land. So think about it. As Israel leaves Egypt, they receive the Decalogue from Sinai. And then as Israel prepares to enter Canaan, they receive this Decalogue that is recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, what this seems to say to me is that any new step, any new process, any new plan that we are going to enter into requires some thoughtful planning of the relational rules and laws that are to govern the move. And God's rules and laws are based in the notion of, you guessed it, justice. Now, I could repeat all ten commandments that sound eerily similar to you from the list in Exodus, but I want to focus, as is our faith tradition, on the fourth commandment, the one that begins in chapter 5, verse 12. Now, this commandment, as we've discussed many times before here in our time together, is similar, almost identical, I should say, to the commandment that God delivers in the book of Exodus, save for one simple detail. And the detail is found in verse 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. So Israel is called and commanded to keep Sabbath as a reminder of their experiences of slavery in Egypt. Now, Joey and I have talked quite often about this idea, about the respite and the rest that former slaves never felt or experienced before in Egypt. And now God is asking Israel to mimic that as they are preparing to enter into a new space. In other words, God's law of justice is meant to be replicated in the realm of human interactions. So while the law of the land is an eye for an eye, God's justice is always restorative and redemptive. And that's what we're called to mimic. But I want to push you to a completely different idea and a new nuance that became clear to me as I delved into this passage in more detail. And that is the, the concept of the idea of Sabbath itself. You see, Sabbath, that word that we repeat sometimes even mindlessly, at the end of the week as we say, Happy Sabbath, Happy Sabbath, the word comes from the Hebrew Shabbat. And Shabbat is a word that comes or that can be translated as stop. So 
at the heart of Sabbath is not only the idea of rest and restoration, but there's also the idea of cessation. In other words, the commandment to keep the Sabbath, the covenantal instruction that God is giving, is to stop. Why is that important? Because too often, dear friends, we get stuck in these patterns. We get stuck in these cycles, and those cycles end up running our lives. Now, God is telling Israel right before they enter into a new land, as they are getting ready to construct a new society, stop. Stop the burdens of the past and enter anew. Now, how does he tell them to stop? Well, he tells them to stop not by forgetting the legacy of the past, but by making peace with the legacy of the past. And as we've said before, justice, well, justice is making peace with the past as we strive to create a new future. Now, the idea of Sabbath as cessation is interesting for a group of slaves that are now called to be masters of the land. And why do I say that? Well, I say that because Deuteronomy takes the idea of stopping in this idea of justice a bit further. If you go all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 15, you're going to see some interesting things that that particular passage denotes. So we're going to leave our fingers on Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we're going to move quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Now, I want you to notice two things. The superscript in my Bible has two def clearly defined sections in the first half of the chapter. The first section is the year for canceling debts. The second section is the year for freeing servants. Now, those two sections are important because they are practical applications of this idea of justice and cessation that God is trying to establish. First, the idea of canceling debts. It is said in Deuteronomy 15 that people ought to offer loans freely, that they, are, that they ought to to allow each other the amount of money that is needed because the reality is that debt or falling into debt can sometimes be a good thing. Now, I'm sure you can think of examples where incurring in some debt is a good practice. Think about the young family that is entrepreneurial and dreams about borrowing some money at a decent interest rate. They open a small business, the business thrives, and as the business develops, they are able to repay the loan in the time that is allotted. And everyone wins. The family wins, the employees win, and the lender wins. Now, think about times where incurring in debt can be bad. Say the same family with all its entrepreneurial desires borrows some money, incurs in some debt, opens a small business, and either because of the market or because someone in the family falls ill or because there is a change in technology or the means of production, the business flounders. In that case, 
The family loses. The employees lose. The public loses. But you know who doesn't lose? The lender. You see, the reality is that in our current society, the system has been created and built so that lenders never lose. And into that, you have the book of Deuteronomy speaking a powerful word. It stated that every seventh year, regardless of how much money you had sold or what interest rate you were charging, the debts needed to be canceled. It was like starting over. It was a permanent promise of a new hope and a new future. By the way, isn't that what the gospel does? Doesn't the gospel say your debts are canceled in order to present a new future to you? The gospel provides us this idea of hope that our ethical and moral failures are canceled out by the gift of Jesus. But the book of Deuteronomy speaks of another realm, the earthly realm, the realm that you and I inhabit with its markets and its money. And it says families ought to experience hope. So every seventh year, cancel all debts. Now, if you're a shrewd business person, then you would say, well, I'm not going to lend money on the sixth year. After all, I won't recover my investment. I won't charge enough interest. I'll lose money. God speaks clearly to this idea in this section by simply saying that the lenders ought not to be tight-fisted in the sixth year, that God will bless the people of Israel if they lend freely. Justice, truly restorative and redemptive justice, justice that is closely connected with the gospel, the same type of justice that the prophets like Micah spoke about, always allows for hope. Sure, sometimes reparations are needed, but reparation and punishment ought never to extinguish hope. So in our search for justice, and as we move to a gospel-oriented understanding of the covenant of justice, we should remember that punishment never extinguish, extinguishes hope. Secondly, it's not only the debts that are to be canceled. Slaves are also to be freed on the seventh year. Now, we can spend some time talking about the merits and the curses of an, of an economy based on slavery. We as a society have decided in the year 2021 that slavery is pernicious to the integrity of humankind, to that image of God that exists in us. But in the time that scripture was written, slavery and, and the economy produced by it was considered a given. And into that reality, the book of Deuteronomy says, justice must create the opportunity to view the other as an equal. So what does Israel do? What does God command as part of the covenant in the book of Deuteronomy? He says, every seventh year, you are to free all slaves. And you might think, say to yourself, well, that's a really good idea. We free them, we exploit their labor for six years, and then we let them go. Here's what's really interesting about this second 
section in chapter 15. It says that when you let a Jewish slave go, you ought not to send her or him empty-handed. In other words, you are to provide for them some startup capital so that they may invest themselves in the community. In other words, every seventh year, there was the promise of pursuing justice that promoted not only hope, as part of the process, but the ultimate goal of looking at the other person as an equal. And that, too, is ingrained in this idea of Sabbath observance that we've learned about and talked about so often in the book of Deuteronomy, particularly in the fifth chapter. So, in other words, God is saying Sabbath is the in, the expression of stopping, stopping this, these rhythms and these paradigms that we have been enmeshed in, in order to provide a path to justice and reconciliation that pursues hope and that also allows the other to be seen as an equal. But that's not all that we understand and that we talk about with this covenantal understanding of Sabbath. There are two other places that I want you to just reflect on. The first one is found in Exodus chapter 23, and you can read that chapter at your leisure. I'm just going to summarize what that particular passage states. It states, in essence, that every seventh year you are to give the land a rest. The environment itself ought to benefit of Rest and restoration. Animals and the environment also are called to participate in the experience of covenant. And every seventh year, we rest in remembrance of our connection to the environment that's around us. So not only are you to pursue justice as a mode to find restoration and reconciliation in hopeful relationships with the other by recognizing them as your equal, you are also to invest and immerse yourself in in bettering your environment. In other words, the things that surround you are not created simply for your benefit. You have a relationship that is mutual with them. You depend on them as much as they depend on you. And so rather than creating a relationship with the land that was based solely on exploitation, God says, every seventh day, you stop. You stop in order to not control the environment for production. You stop in order to give the slaves and these people that are barely entering the economy with the opportunity to catch up. The means of production then were shared among the people. Now, this isn't socialism, and it's not crony capitalism. This is how just societies are built. Now, here's the one that is really shocking. Leviticus 25. Again, you can peruse that passage at your leisure. But the Bible says that every 50th year, the land itself was to be returned to the people that originally owned it. So, first you have this concept of Sabbath, 
where everything ceases. It's a cessation of the old paradigms in order to pursue new relationships. Then you have chapter 15, which says slaves and debts to be canceled every seventh year. Then you have Exodus that says not only are debts and people's freedoms to be restored, the land is also to rest. But Leviticus 25 says every 50th year, everything, everything is restored and renewed. The land, the people, the debts, we all start from zero. Why? Because God is always trying to pursue justice that is redemptive. And in order for justice to be redemptive, justice has to afford the opportunity of new beginnings. So when Micah looks back and tells his audience, you know, O mortal, what is right and what the Lord your God demands from you, he is merely talking about this concept, this concept of Sabbath, this concept of Sabbath grounded in justice, the idea of covenant that pushes for equality, the idea of new beginnings that lives out and breathes out in the gospel. And that is why Jesus came to die. That is the message of the gospel, that at some point, Jubilee is here because in him, we all have a new beginning. So my friend Joey and I are going to talk about this idea of the covenant in Deuteronomy and how that's connected with the gospel. Joey, I am so happy that we are able to chat with these new big mics that we have in front of our faces. Yeah, we get the mics back again after all those months that we haven't had them. It's it's great to be back with you. And Oh man, when you were talking about Common Core, I my heart went out to you. I've, I've struggled with that myself. I, a few weeks ago, um, my daughter brought a, home a problem and said, Dad, I don't know how to do this. Daddy, I don't know how to do this. And I looked at it and it looked like gibberish, really. I mean, they use symbols to describe the tenths place, the mm-hmm. hundredths place, you know, different symbols. And I was like, what does the box mean? <laughs> does the box mean that there's like a hundred of them? Does the bo- why are you, why is it a box, a line, and a dot? Like what <laughs> what makes that happen? And so it took me a while to figure figure it out. It had to do some research, reread her example problems, and finally figured it out. But man. Yeah, they did reinvent math while we weren't looking. Can you believe that math is new? And yet I tell my son this all the time. I say, hey, Micah, I got the answer right. And he says, yeah, Dad, but the way you get there has changed. And it seems like that's what the Bible is telling Israel. Mm. He's like, they're like, hey, get the answer right. Whether you're a nomadic people trying to enter Canaan or an established kingdom living in the middle of empires warring for supremacy, the way you get there might change, mm. but the answer remains the same, and it, it's it's covenant, and it's justice, and it's, it, well, it's the gospel. Wow, that's beautiful. You've just redeemed Common Core math for me. Can you believe that? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think that's possible, though. But, um, but yeah, the, Bi- the Bible and, and this idea of covenant is central, I think, to to their experiences of who God was. Yeah, it's so true. You know, and the thing that I have appreciated about Common Core is that before there was just one way to do math, mm-hmm. right? And if you didn't, if it was hard for you to understand using that one path, 
then you just kind of fell to the wayside. What Common Core does is it gives all these different pathways to learn the same thing so that one of them at least should connect with you and hopefully the child will be able to grasp onto that one one way of thinking about it and and learn math a little bit better. So you're the one who's redeemed Common Core math now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what God does for us, <laughs> that's right? Exactly. Hey, the gospel and Common Core, you get them both today. Yeah. He he uses whatever path he can to get people into mm. a better relationship with mm. him and to lead us, like you were talking about, to justice, mm. right? That justice is at the core of the law and that God's law is based on this idea of justice. That was powerful. That was powerful. So, Joey, when we talk about justice, we talk about the justice system and this idea of justice being blind. Um, it's It's almost as if justice is this this quantifiable thing that you can pursue and then and that can be given to you um, if you've been injured in any way. Seems like the Bible is pushing a slightly different understanding of justice. And, and, and what I mean by that is it seems like, as you were saying, God's ultimate concern for justice is that whatever way you get there, uh, to the answer, there's there's a myriad of paths that you can pursue. You can you can be a theocracy, you can have a king, though that's not the ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be a vassal kingdom, but the point is that you arrive at this understanding that justice is always restorative and redemptive. Yeah, yeah, and I love that because often when we talk about justice, we're thinking. More like justice is for um, revenge, mm-hmm. right? But you're saying that justice ultimately is for redemption. Mm. That it's not just to give what is due to the the person that was wronged, but also to lead the person who does wrong into a better place yeah. and into a better relationship. So there is that redemptive aspect of justice that often gets lost in our justice system yeah. here in the United States. Yeah, well, absolutely. And and not just in our justice system, but if you, if you think about our economic systems, and by this I mean all of the economic systems that we have, this side of paradise, they're all about, well, what is in it for me? Mm-hmm. So... Capitalism says, well, you need somebody to invest into the market. And in order for them to do that, there needs to be a hefty return mm. so that people can can continue investing in the market. And it seems here that God is saying, you lend and allow freedom and sometimes even take a loss and I'll take care of you on the other side. So in, in that sense, justice um, in, in a very real way connected to economic policy, at least for, for people living under the covenant, was, was an exercise of, of faith as well. Yeah, it's so true. I, I, that's what I found so remarkable about what you were saying with uh, the idea of them being able to forgive debts. He's saying, even if you give a debt at the sixth year mm-hmm. and you know that you're not going to make mm-hmm. enough by the seventh year when you have to forgive it, just do it because trust me, I will take care of you. Mm. That's the rationale that mm. God gives. Trust me, I will take care of you in Deuteronomy 15. And that, that wow, I wonder, can we follow that practice in the way that we live our economic pra- practice? 
Or is that only valid for a theocracy? You know, can can we do that in a capitalistic structure where everybody needs to try to get what mm. they they can get as much as they can get? Or or can we still operate out of that mode of trust and saying, you know, even if I'm not trying to maximize my profit um, at sometimes the expense of my neighbor, God will take care of me. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question, Joey. And I I can hear some of my friends that lean a little bit to the left saying, well, this this sounds off an awful lot like socialism, to which I push back and say, no, 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 no. See, you've not understood. Mm. So in socialism as an economic system, the gov it's the government that controls mm. Uh, the means of production and wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Here, at least with the with the injunction in Deuteronomy 15 and then Leviticus 25, it's attempting to protect private property, as it were. So you have your land mm. that you have lost because of debt or a downturn in the economy. We want to make sure that you're that that is protected because in an agrarian society, that is the ultimate means of production. Mm. And so it's not socialism. It's actually very, very concerned, at least in, in my reading of it, with the individual right to property that people have mm -hmm. um, and, and the identity that occurs when you have this, this connection to the land. So that's not what Deuteronomy or, or Leviticus are advocating for. They're also not advocating for crony capitalism, mm -hmm. where the government says, no, no, you can have land and a means of production, but the system is always going to be slanted in order to benefit those who have more. Mm -hmm. Actually, what it seems to be saying is those who have more have an economic and social responsibility towards those who have less. Mm -hmm. And so it's this type of economic system that doesn't exist in, in the structures that we have created as human beings. It's covenantal economy. You're asking, is that possible? My answer is, I don't know because it hasn't been tried yet. Mm. And it hasn't been tried yet because it's going to require an immense amount of faith, first in God mm -hmm. and then in each other. And let's face it, when faith is asked and touches our pockets, faith becomes eerily difficult to do. So mm. much so that scholars will tell you that beautiful as these laws are that they were never actually kept, yeah. that Israel never was able to live up to the ideals mm. of what the Deuteronomistic laws and Levitical laws required. In other words, justice, even for them in the economic realm, remained fleeting. And so if Israel, with all of its benefits and with all of their connection to Yahweh, failed, then it's a tall task for us to follow. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Hmm. Wow. So even, even with a government designed by God, a theocracy that was led by God, um, with a people that purported to follow God, they were not able to follow mm -hmm. this um, because of that, the immense amount of trust required in order to make it, mm -hmm. make it happen. Wow. And yet, it seems like in, in maybe not in governmental ways, but in personal, individual ways, 
this is what Jesus calls us to as well, right? That money doesn't become the end all be all mm -hmm. of our lives. Um, we have a community in Acts where in, in within that small microcosm for at least a short period of time, they are operating somewhat in that realm of sharing what they have and, and um, feeling um, taking care of the poor and those in need without mo my primary concern being, do I have enough for myself? Mm -hmm. But even within that community, we see um, we see Ananias and Sapphira yeah. popping up. And I can't imagine they were the only ones. They're probably the recorded ones, but that other people felt the same way as they did, where they still felt like, oh, even in this community of sharing, where we are led by the Spirit, I need to get what's mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and faith, like we said before, faith becomes a really difficult proposition mm. when it's connected to our bottom line. Mm. Um, it's interesting, or I should say it shouldn't surprise us, actually, that Jesus, who is the embodiment of covenant, speaks more about money than he does about any other topic in the Gospels. Mm. There's this constant reminder that against the temptation to allow the things you own to begin to own you. Mm. And as you've said, for this briefest of moments, the Acts community, that early church community, which I think lived out the idea of stop and create something new by being called out to live mm. a different type of reality, they were able to embody that for the slightest of, of moments, so much so that one of one of the practices that became common for the early church was for church members to sell themselves into slavery in order to produce uh, and provide for the basic needs of the community that surrounded them. Wow. Yeah, you know that that phrase that we let the things that we own to um, let them be become the things that own us. I mean, that's that is so powerful. It reminds me of something that uh, Randy said during our staff retreat that um, we get in trouble when we worship the things that should be used and um, use the things mm. that should be worshipped, mm -hmm. right? And I, I, when I think about that, how much, how much of the things that God has given to us to be to use as a blessing for others? Do I allow those things to own me? And mm -hmm. at the, like you said, at the core of the Sabbath message, the weekly Sabbath message was to stop, to break those patterns and not let those things take ownership of our lives, to remember to put those in mm -hmm. proper perspective, at least for the Sabbath, mm. at least for the Sabbath day. And, and that's, I think, God's ultimate desire for us, not just for the Sabbath, mm. but for our existence as a whole. It's, it's, I think, why so much more work needs to be done in, in developing a theology of the Sabbath mm. that is more than just about the day you worship or about the activities that you do. Because there's this deeply relational mm -hmm. aspect to the Sabbath, don't you think, where the Sabbath kind of serves as this place mm. where or all our relationships converge. Our relationship with God mm -hmm. and the first three commandments converges with the Sabbath. And the last command, the last few commandments that have to do with our relationship with each other, they are all expressed in this, well, in this invitation to stop and assess the type of justice mm -hmm. that we are pursuing and how that is informing and impacting uh, the people around us. Yeah, and perhaps that's why God put it right there in the middle, 
right, and the bridge between his our, the, the commandments that talk about the way that we relate to God and relate with others. There's this beautiful, positive message of the Sabbath that encourages us to enter into a positive relationship with God and with others. And it's an opportunity, like you said, to have to start a culture shift, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I loved how you described that um, that the Israelites took this time, where God took time with the Israelites, right after they came out of Egypt at Sinai to sort of um, define their relationship, and then right before they enter into the um, the Promised Land to also again define their relationship. That's a that's a term that's often used in in dating, right? The define your relationship. Mm-hmm conversation, mm-hmm. like um, ones that some people, some, one member of the party may not be as comfortable <laughs> to, <laughs> to have as others, but it, it's an important conversation where you Absolutely. say, where is this going? What's the plan here? Are we just here to have fun? Are we going to, are we moving towards something more serious? Taking time to define that relationship is so crucial. And God seems to do that with the Israelites mm-hmm. here. And it's a word that 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 has been used in in the lesson, which is the idea of covenant, right? Mm-hmm. And God uses that that imagery of the covenant to define this is what the relationship between you and I should look like as we move forward. This is what I'm going to do for you. This is what I encourage you to do oh. for me. Yeah, Joey, that is that is well stated. And I think the beauty of this covenantal relationship that the lesson talks about is that the covenantal reality then spills in mm-hmm. or spills out to the reality of our relational experiences with one yeah. another. So God says, look, you were a slave in Egypt. Mm. I freed you. Go and free the slaves after seven years. <laughs> oh, wow. You needed uh, land, and I gave you Canaan. Go give back the land to those who own it. And so it's almost like this covenantal reality or understanding that God and Israel are experiencing is now Mm. being experienced and expressed in the realm of interpersonal relationships, which is why I think Deuteronomy does such a powerful case uh, in building this idea of covenant to not just include these Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. It's a whole series of covenantal laws that include how we are to treat slaves, Mm -hmm. how we are to treat the land, how we are to treat each other, how our our government is to function, how our economic system is Mm -hmm. to function. It's almost as if God is saying, the covenantal reality that you have now been called to dwell in has to have an impact in every other arena of your life. And I think as we're trying to connect this notion of covenant to the gospel, Mm -hmm. that message is as relevant today as it was all that time ago, and that is the gospel reality Mm -hmm. that you are called to live with Jesus ought to spread out and inform the way you live every other aspect of your life. Mm, wow, that's that's so beautiful. I didn't think of it that way, but really, that's that's what God is doing here, isn't he? He's he's starting with um, defining the relationship in how he treats the Israelites, and then saying says to them, "How I've shown my love to you, now go and show mm-hmm. that kind of love to the people around you, to your neighbors, um, to your manservant, mm-hmm. to your." oxen to everyone that that you come in contact with even your beasts of burden show this kind of care and compassion to them yeah 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 Yeah. no joey 
um, you and I talk quite a bit about leadership, and so I was thinking about God trying to lead, because you're right, it's, this is ultimately a theocracy, and so God is trying to lead this new government, much in the same way that Jesus is trying to lead this new movement. Yeah. Um, and in both those cases, God engages in this thing that now uh, leadership gurus are, are in love with, which is called transformational leadership. Mm. And the process and the idea behind it is people can't dream of something so different than what they have as a frame of reference mm. until first they see it lived out. Mm. Um, people sometimes, this is a, f a famous uh, idea that uh, the late Steve Jobs came out with, people don't know what they want until they see it built because they don't have a frame of reference to yeah. know what that is. And so transformational leadership is about embodying this new vision. And it seems like God is embodying this mm. new vision and Jesus is embodying this new vision with the New Testament community so that we don't just look at it and say, well, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. It's actually a call for us then to tra to transform our communities, our lives, and to go out and replicate these ways of relating to each other. Wow. And especially for those Israelites coming out of slavery, mm. their frame of reference was very distorted mm -hmm. because it was very transactional. Not just transactional, it was abusive, right? Where those with power just took advantage of those without. And God is saying, I want to shift that culture. And it, it's something that they probably had a very difficult time grasping until he showed them that as the God of power, he's the one that showed grace. Yeah. As the God of that who had, he's the one who gave. And he says, I want you to be the same mm -hmm. in these. And it's, it's it even spelled out in these minute laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The whole rationale for all of that, again, is as I've done for you, do to others. Mm -hmm. Because I can do this for you, you don't ever have to worry about whether you're going to have enough because you have a God that's always going to give mm. and there will be plenty for you to mm. receive. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so they asked the famous uh, American tycoon, uh, Rockefeller, how much money was enough? <laughs> and he, he would famously say just a little more. And so when you're focused on me mm. uh, and on yourself, um, there's never enough. I remember you uh, delivering a message here in our community about a year ago in which you invited the community to stop thinking about me mm -hmm. and start thinking about God's wondrous we. And it mm -hmm. seems like that is built into this idea of covenantal relationships mm -hmm. and of gospel justice, that it's not just me, mm -hmm. because the more I focus on me, it's never going to be enough. The moment I start mm. focusing on we, resources seem to multiply. Yeah. And we can do that because we have a God that did that for us as mm. well. That he did, even though he was God, he did not um, consider it too little for him to come down and be born as a baby and to die on our live here on earth and die on our behalf he's like you said he did transformational leadership he modeled what that looks like how that can look for that the person with power to to condescend himself and to show and to uh, express love and share what he has because he loves so much um mm -hmm. all of us so maybe 
maybe it's Pollyannish for us to pursue a just economy mm-hmm. or a just government. But maybe the invitation that Christ is giving us is to individually, as people begin to pursue covenantal government and covenantal economy. Mm. And by doing that, then at least our little sphere of the world is transformed. When you think about what impact these laws had, realistic felt impact, in the world and they were written, mm. it's negligible, mm. right? We, we know, as we said, that they were almost never kept, even the sevens. Um, and we know that Israel was a fairly small uh, nation that, uh, that was always being threatened by these giant empires that had other types of laws, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, it seems, at least at the moment, that this vision for covenantal living that God had didn't really succeed, except you and I are talking about it millennia later, and we're still inviting people into the same experiment that God was inviting this community all that time ago, and that is to covenantal living. That's so powerful, that a just government or just economy may be out of our reach. Not that we shouldn't keep reaching for them, but they may be out of our reach, but we can be a just people. Mm. Wow. What a powerful way to finish. I think we need not say any more. Joey and I are going to continue talking and counseling each other over Common Core Math. But before we do that, won't you lead us out in prayer? Let's pray. Good and gracious God, our God of the covenant, our God of love, our God of redemption, our God of justice. We want to thank you so much for not using your position or your power or your resources to lord over us, but you actually use them to provide redemption for us, to provide hope, to provide a, a way forward to a better place. And so we, we ask that, that as a people, although this, this world may not always be just, the circumstances that we live in may not always be merciful or redemptive, that we can, we can embody your principles in the way that we live and how we interact in the pe- with the people around us. Help us to follow in your steps is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So be gospel-oriented, be just, but above all, be covenantal. See you next week. May God grant you a gift of Sabbath and a prosperous